Claudia knew that she could never pull off the old-fashioned kind of running away. That is, running away in the heat of anger with a knapsack on her back. She didn't like discomfort. Even picnics were untidy and inconvenient. All those insects and the sun melting the icing on the cupcakes. Therefore, she decided that her leaving home would not just be running away from somewhere, but would be running to somewhere, to a large place, a comfortable place, an indoor place, and preferably a beautiful place. And that's why she decided upon the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. She planned very carefully. She saved her allowance and she chose her companion. Generations of children have read about the Kincaid siblings' meticulously plotted escape from home. They run away to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where they fall in love with a statue from the Italian Renaissance, and discover a secret about its origins. It's been 50 years since E.L. Konigsberg published From the Mixed-Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, and the adventure still feels fresh. Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm Nahani Rouse. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Konigsberg's Newbery Award-winning novel. And what better way to do it than by retracing Claudia and Jamie Kincaid's steps inside the Met. JWA's executive director, Judith Rosenbaum, and I are headed there, along with some special guests. Before we visit the museum, we'll talk to Konigsberg's daughter, Lori Todd. Konigsberg died in 2013. I reached Lori by phone at her home in Idaho. She told me what sparked her mother's idea for the mixed-up files. We were on a family picnic, and we were complaining about the heat and the ants. And she thought to herself that if her kids ever ran away from home, they wouldn't be going into the woods to try to find someplace comfortable. And for the Konigsberg kids... What could be more comfortable than the Metropolitan Museum of Art? The family spent a lot of time there. One day, in the French Renaissance rooms, Konigsberg spotted a tiny piece of popcorn on a silk chair. The chair was behind a velvet rope. How had that popcorn gotten onto the chair? The idea for this best-selling novel grew from a kernel of corn and children quetching at a picnic. Konigsberg took Polaroids of Lori and her brothers at the museum and based the book's illustrations on them. Her kids also partially inspired the book's characters. I think my mother was astute at realizing our personalities. I think the character of Claudia was maybe a combination of me plus maybe my mom even. Claudia is a straight-A student and a meticulous planner. I think my mom was very reliable planned a lot, that kind of thing. My mother had to be very responsible young. Konigsberg's parents both worked, so she took care of her sister a lot and helped out around the house. E.L., or Elaine Lobel, was born in New York City in 1930. Her parents were Eastern European Jewish immigrants. Lori says being Jewish was a big factor in shaping her mother's worldview, and so was the Great Depression. Well, my mother was very poor. Uh, she was the first in her family to go to school, and she had to have three scholarships to be able to do it. Lori says her mother wanted a bigger world than the one she grew up in, and she looked to education as a way to achieve that. 
Konigsberg majored in chemistry at Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, where she met her husband. For a while, she worked as a high school biology teacher. But her husband kept changing jobs, so they moved a lot. And so she looked for a career that would enable her to be home with the kids. And really, that's how she started doing this, plus feeling this need to write. I know it wasn't what she expected. She, she had fully expected to become a scientist. That was a pretty unusual expectation for a woman in the 1950s, when women were supposed to become homemakers. But Konigsberg figured out how to have both a career and a family. Lori says her mom's writing was always part of their life growing up. We walked home for lunch from school, and Mom would read us chapters from the book she was writing to get our reactions. She wanted to know what we thought was funny and why, and she actually did look for our reactions quite a bit. This was part of their routine as a family. After all, Konigsberg wrote 20 books. Her plots are unusual, sometimes funny, sometimes tragic. She wrote about a Jewish mother who coaches her son on a baseball team called the B'nai Bagels, about four outcast kids who befriend a paraplegic teacher, and about a boy who stops talking when his sister suffers a head injury. Many of her characters are Jewish, but she also wrote about African-American kids, working-class white kids, and immigrants. Her characters seem real and complicated. They're capable, brainy, rebellious, pubescent, and quirky. My mother would be the first to say that all her books had a common thread, and that was children finding their own identity and becoming comfortable with that. And she would say, I wrote about that again, (laughs) even though she didn't intend to. Konigsberg's last book was in galleys when she had a stroke. She was in her late 70s and wasn't able to write again. She died after another stroke in 2013. I'm just incredibly proud of my mother, and I think what she writes stands up to all the changes that have occurred because I think fundamentally kids remain the same. And again, she spoke to identity and discovering who you are and being comfortable with that. And I think that that is still what occurs in growing up. There is certain universal things that transcend time. to New York. What are we doing in New York? Um, I'm missing school because I'm going on a tour uh, in the Metropolitan Museum of the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. That's my daughter, Shalva. We're playing hooky so we can meet Judith and her daughter, Mayan, at the Met. Mayan and Shalva are both 10. The last time you heard them on this podcast, they were up in a tree surveying the crowds at the Women's March in Washington. Now, we're here at the museum for a tour based on Konigsberg's novel. The tour doesn't open to the public until July, but we're getting a sneak preview. Here's our tour guide. Hi, I'm Alice Schwarz. I'm a museum educator here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I started coming here as a little girl and then, of course, read the mixed-up files at age 10, and this was a great new insight 
into the museum. Alice has worked at the museum for 33 years and has taught in and about all the collections. Okay, so should we start? Yeah. yeah. We enter the Greek and Roman gallery. Natural light floods the hall. Voices echo off marble surfaces. Many of the statues are missing limbs, but their command of the space is still impressive. Alice pulls out her copy of the mixed-up files, and our little group huddles around. I'm going to take you to a picture in the book that is this room, how it used to be. She flips to a black-and-white drawing. The picture of the fountain. Here we go. In the picture, it's dark, and Claudia and her brother Jamie are standing naked in a shallow reflecting pool surrounded by statues of dancing children. The water is freezing cold, but on their third night away from home, Claudia has decided they need a bath. The fountain isn't here anymore. So just imagine that this is the real space where they supposedly bathe within the fountain. Claudia and Jamie scoop coins off the bottom of the fountain. The next day, they use the money to buy lunch at a nearby automat, a sort of vending machine. So I want you to come in farther with me. You might see in the distance three ancient Roman sarcophagi. Is that where they put the instrument cases? Exactly. So let's go back to one of them, one of my favorites. Claudia plays the violin, and Jamie plays the trumpet. The day they run away from home, they take the instruments out of their cases and stuff the cases with extra clothes. At night, in the museum, they hide them in an ancient sarcophagus. So my first question to you is, do you know what a sarcophagus is? It's sort of like like a coffin, like but where you're buried in. Exactly. Claudia has planned every detail of their escape. She likes things to be orderly. Mayan and Shalva appear to appreciate this quality. Um, which character do you think you identify with the most? Um, I think Claudia, because sometimes I like to be really proper and um, sort of experiment with challenges, like try to be really responsible. And I definitely like to correct other people's grammar. Um, same here. I think I identify with Claudia the closest. She likes to do things for herself. She likes to plan. She really likes to be in charge. And I am also constantly correcting people's grammar. So. In the late 60s, the streets outside the museum were full of political protest. Anti-war demonstrations, civil rights and black power. The feminist movement was gaining momentum. On the surface, the book doesn't reflect this at all. The museum provides a shelter from the outside world, and Claudia seems to be a proper, somewhat conservative girl. But then she runs away. Why do you think she wanted to run away? I feel like she had like three younger brothers, so I think she felt like she was the oldest and she took on the responsibilities of being the oldest but wasn't appreciated. I think she just thought that her conditions weren't fair. She calls them injustices. I think they're sort of taking advantage of her as having as being the clever one and the smart one and and like so she does all the work because she can and she's also just tired of having the daily normal life go to school come back and she says at one point she was tired of being straight A Claudia Kincaid one of the things I, that I noticed for the first time is that one of the injustices she talks about is not just that she's the oldest and so she's expected to do more, but she's the only girl, and so yeah. she's expected to do more around the house and clear the table and set the table and those kinds of things that are not expected of her brothers, in part because they're younger and in part because they're boys. 
because this yeah. book was written 50 years ago, so the expectations within family around what roles were for girls or boys were different. I think there's a way in which she's enacting her own little rebellion of the 60s inside the museum. Claudia's accomplice in this rebellion is a member of the family she's running away from. She picks Jamie because he's the least annoying of her three brothers. Plus, he's saved up his allowance so he can help fund their adventure. Still, in the beginning of the story, they argue constantly. She corrects his grammar. He says her ideas are stupid. But their shared adventure brings them closer. There's one point in the book where it says, like, then something happened. They became a team. Yeah. And I think at that moment they realized that they had to work together or else nothing would work. They would get caught and they would just be sent back home. And they had to work together or else they wouldn't succeed in their adventure. What do you think they learned to respect about each other? I think that they, they learned that they were different, but they also learned that they had a lot of things in common and that, you know, they, their differences kind of complemented each other. Claudia appoints Jamie the treasurer because he's more frugal. Jamie is impressed by Claudia's planning. She has even figured out where they will sleep. We follow Alice into the French Renaissance. So we're going to go look for a bedroom. The lights are dim in the French rooms, and the floor is carpeted, so it's a bit quieter in here. It feels like we're walking into a full-sized dollhouse with very fancy furniture. These are the French rooms of the time of Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. She wanted to Claudia, Marie Antoinette's desk. And that's Marie Antoinette's desk, right there. It's an ornate wooden table with a bookstand. It's edged in gold. A pretty nice desk, but nothing compared to the bed Alice shows us in the next room. The bed Claudia and Jamie fictitiously slept in is not at the museum anymore. But we have within the museum, I think there are eight bedrooms, and this one I thought was the most fabulous. The bed is covered in silvery blue embroidered silk, gathered and draped into swags with gold trim and tassels. More silk hangs from the carved wooden canopy, which soars 13 feet off the floor. There's a small set of stairs next to the bed because the mattress is so high up. Okay, I'd be okay sleeping there right? if I were running this away. This is why I chose this room. So let's go a little bit closer. So this is 1700s France. This is for quite a wealthy family. It gives you a very good idea of how um, certain high-level people in, in Paris lived at that time. Imagine resting the back of your head on the bolster and then just stretching out. Do you think kids have ever tried to come in and hide in here? Certainly no one would get by with sleeping overnight, but what I find fascinating about this museum, because of how large it is, you can easily travel through the Met, tuck yourself back in a certain gallery, and on several occasions be in a room where it's nothing but you and the works of art. Sounds like an experience straight from the mixed-up files. How do you think you would feel if you were walking in these spaces in the dark at night all by yourselves? I would feel a little bit queasy and a little bit creeped out. Okay, I would not be walking here because I would be, wherever I was sleeping, petrified with fright. Claudia and Jamie do creep around the museum at night. They manage to avoid the night watchmen, but once, they almost get caught during the day. It turns out Jamie's class is at the museum on a field trip. Their paths almost cross in the Egyptian wing. Claudia and Jamie hide inside Perneb's tomb, 
a 4,000-year-old Egyptian burial chamber. We squeeze through a narrow slot. The ancient stone walls are covered in plexiglass. It's a tight fit for our small group inside the tomb. Oh, hieroglyphics. There are walls full of hieroglyphs of people doing different kinds of work. At the end of the chamber, there's a false door. A sign explains that the false door symbolizes in concrete form that the living can indeed make contact with the dead. Wow. So it's a door. It's like a doorway between one world and another. Claudia and Jamie have, in a way, entered the world of the dead. They've stored their bags in a sarcophagus, they're surrounded by mummies, and they're hiding from their classmates inside a tomb. What are they thinking? Classmates are about to turn the corner and find them in here. They probably are just like, sur- they're probably surrounded by fear, like, oh my god, we're gonna be found out. But at the last minute, a teacher calls the class away. Claudia and Jamie are not discovered. The otherworldly existence they've carved out for themselves is preserved a little longer. Long enough to solve the secret of the angel. The angel statue arrived at the museum around the same time as Claudia and Jamie. Crowds of people line up to see it. It's rumored to have been carved by Michelangelo, but no one knows for sure. Or almost no one. Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler sold the statue to the museum for almost nothing. Claudia has a hunch she knows the truth. Finding out becomes the centerpiece of Claudia and Jamie's adventure. The statue of the angel doesn't really exist, at least not as far as anyone at the museum knows. Alice says a sketch of an angel by Michelangelo used to hang in the museum, and Konigsberg might have seen that. The sketch is so fragile, they now keep it in a vault. Are there any statues that are kind of like the angel? Yes. We spent some time with a small marble cupid by Michelangelo. Take a look at it from all sides. How did you find out that it was by Michelangelo? Do you remember the parts in the book where they remember they they found the three rings with the M and then they went to the New York Public Library to do all sorts of research and all of that. So that's exactly how historians and conservators work out, you know, what is an object, where is it from, how old is it. It's a lot of piecing information together. But how can you be positive that it's authentic? Probably we can't be positive about anything. To be perfectly honest, the one thing that we could be positive about is the age of something, because there's carbon dating. There's an entire department of scientific researchers that are dealing with teeny tiny specks of different aspects of works of art that can determine the age of something. Anything else historians want to know requires a lot of research and educated guesswork. Could the mystery be better than knowing for sure? No, I think I'd want to know. I agree with you. (laughs) So do we. (laughs) Claudia agrees, too. She doesn't want to go home until she finds out whether the angel is an authentic work by Michelangelo. To solve the mystery, Claudia and Jamie take the train to Mrs. Frankweiler's palatial estate in Connecticut. But the old woman is as enigmatic as the statue. She won't give them a straight answer and makes them hunt through her mixed-up files, a lifetime's worth of research cataloged according to a system only she understands. Finally, in a file marked Bologna, they discover a 470-year-old document sealed between two pieces of glass. It's a sketch of the angel, 
signed by Michelangelo. Mrs. Frankweiler swears them to secrecy. Her message seems to be that the mystery is worth as much as the work itself. Claudia is finally willing to go home. Does that mean she's found what she was looking for? She said she wanted to go back to Greenwich different. Greenwich. Greenwich? Okay. And <laughs> she found, yeah, I think she, she found a difference. She found a secret that she could keep for herself. And that kind of excitement. And I think she did succeed what she was looking for. Claudia and Jamie promise to keep Mrs. Frankweiler's secret. But they go home with more than that. They've spent a week in the company of mummies, angels, and mythic works of art. And each other. Thank you for joining us, and Claudia and Jamie, for this episode of Can We Talk? If you're in New York in mid-July, meet Alice Schwarz at the Met for a Mixed Up Files tour. She'll be leading them on July 13th and 15th. Special thanks to Lori Todd, Mayan Rosenbaum, and Shalva Lazarus. Judith Rosenbaum is the executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive. Our team also includes Emily Catanio. Ivy Caputo edited the script, and our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. Visit us online at jwa.org slash canwetalk to listen, subscribe, and send your friends a link to your favorite episodes. You can also help people find this podcast by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Please consider making a donation at jwa.org slash donate. And if you're interested in sponsoring an episode, suggesting a topic, or just dropping us a line, please email us at podcasts at jwa.org. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> to our next podcasting adventure. What will the next what? podcast be about? We are taking a summer break. Yes, we are. We are. No. What, from the podcast? No, oh, we're yes. Not. No. How about we just do the podcast? Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll do one about Hermione. <laughs> How does that relate or to Hermione? Or Porpentina goals. We'll do okay. one about Hermione. RBG. Don't tell me. Don't tell yeah, me. That yeah. would be good. Okay. Maybe she'll respond to you guys for an interview. Ooh, yeah. okay. You have to but, pitch us. Yeah. And we are tough. Sort of. I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. We are taking a summer break. We'll see you again in the fall.